You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. So we're here in the second week, second week in our series in the Psalms, 150 weeks in a row of Psalms, just kidding, uh, just for the summer. I was thinking about uh, Psalm 19 this week uh, and thinking about how do, I, how do I think about the Psalms? How does Adam think about the Psalms? And I don't know if any of that would be helpful, but I, I sort of think of them like songs on the radio uh, when I'm listening, when people used to listen to the radio. Um, when I would, would drive around in, in high school and I would listen to music, I was always like, uh, this, this song means so much to me, right? Particular songs would come on and I'd turn it up and like they would hit me in this point in time of my life and I would, I would absolutely like grab onto the song. But then I would, I would find out that the, that the artist actually meant something different by the song. I don't know, does that make sense? So like uh, what, this, what the writer meant and what it meant to me weren't exactly the same thing. Um, and, and if you were a 90s youth group kid, uh, you spent all of your time searching for spiritual meaning in every song that you were trying to convince your parents was okay to listen to. So like that, that sort of idea. Um, but that's this weird dynamic, right? Like the song means what it means, and the writer gets to determine that. But what makes songs meaningful to each of us is where those songs hit us when, we're, when we hear them, where we're at in our lives, the experiences that we're having. They might land differently to us based on where we are when we hear them. And I think that preaching and thinking about the Psalms, something is kind of similar to that. Uh, the, the, where we are determines how Psalms land in our lives. And that might be slightly different from why the Psalm was written. It lands differently to each of us differently in different seasons of life, depending for, it, for us as individuals. Now, the Psalms mean what they mean. They're determined by the writer, inspired by the Spirit, but often what makes them meaningful is where we're at when we read them. And I think this is one of the great things about how God works. I think this is a wonderful thing where, where, where God allows songs from thousands of years ago to land in our lives that are meaningful, moving, and significant in ways that draws deeper into relationship between us and God because of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. And I'm excited to talk about Psalm 19 today. C.S. Lewis said that this, he said this, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter, meaning the book of Psalms, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So uh, thank you to Dave for reading Psalm 19. I'm not going to take the time to read it again now, but we'll, we will read it. So let's... Um, Let's uh, pray and ask the Spirit of God to be with us. God, we are grateful for the chance to gather this morning around your word, to hear from you. We pray that you would keep all of us in tune with you and your spirit as we uh, reflect on these words this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. So in the spirit of that, what the writer means versus how it lands in our own lives, I want to start by thinking about what is the writer trying to say? What's David trying to say? in Psalm 19, writing this song a thousand, or thousands of years ago. And here's how I would sum it up, and you're going to hear me say this a lot today, so hopefully it'll be in our minds as we leave. And that is this, I think Psalm 19 is a reminder to us that God is speaking to us in every imaginable way for our unimaginable good. God is speaking to us in every imaginable way for our unimaginable 
Good. So I want to take this in three parts. Because if, if you heard it as it was read, there's sort of like three movements in this. So let's start with verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19. David says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. Yet their voice, no sound is heard for them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So let's stop there for a minute, make a, a few observations. In the call to worship this morning, Brian, you were right on. That's exactly what David is trying to get across to us here. To say that the, the heavens declare the glory of God seems to indicate that all of creation is declaring God's glory. And I'll say this, all of creation is declaring God's glory in two directions. First of all, all of creation is declaring God's glory to God. Giving God the due God deserves. To declare the glory of God means that we give God praise in public. In Psalm 19, David is saying that creation is engaged in an ongoing, ever-present, eternal, public declaration of praise to God. This is similar to the language that we hear more directly in Psalm 96, and this is not on the screen, so you just hear this from Psalm 96, where the writer says, Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all of creation rejoice before the Lord because He comes, He comes to judge the earth and will judge the earth in righteousness and the people in faithfulness. Do you hear that? All of creation is in an ongoing and ever-present declaration of praise to God. We hear it in Psalm 19 and Psalm 96 and other places. We also hear echoes of this idea in the hymn, Joyful, Joyful. All thy works with joy surround thee. Earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee, center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flashing meadow, crashing sea. Singing bird and flowing fountain call us to rejoice in thee. Do you hear it? Creation is praising God because of God's glory. Declaring God's praise to God. And then also, secondly, all of creation is bearing witness to all of us about the glory of God. This is what that public on-display praise of creation does. It's not just praising God, but it's declaring to everyone who will see and listen that God is worthy. To pay attention to creation is to pay attention to a chorus of praise pointing us toward the God who made all of this happen. Like the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to Thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Or the hymn, This is My Father's World, which we're singing, right, after this? 
This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Yeah. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote many poems. This is a great one. I think it's on the screen. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. What did Moses do when he saw the burning bush, right? He realizes he's standing on holy ground. And the response is to take off your shoes. That's what she's getting at, right? Earth is crammed with heaven. David is reflecting on the reality that all of creation bears witness to God. Every corner of the world is a testament to its creator. All of creation can't wait to tell you all about it. If we would but pay attention. God is speaking to us in every imaginable way for our unimaginable good. What changes about the way we live if that's truly true? couple of quick observations. Last week, Andrew said that one of the application points of the sermon was to consider a tree. Do you remember that? If you were here, Andrew said, just consider a tree. I, I want to continue to think about that. All of creation declares the glory of God. And many of us would readily admit that when we stand in front of, say, the edge of the Grand Canyon or to see an incredible mountain range, or a pristine waterfall, or a sunset over the waters of Lake Michigan, we would readily agree that this is a declaration of the glory of God, right? But what about when we're standing in the dirt of our own backyard? Are we that, or do we see it then? In our backyards and in our neighborhood? If it's true that all of creation is bearing witness to the glory of God, then God's glory is just as available to me at 1045 on the west side of South Bend as it is at sunset on the west coast. I don't have to travel to see God's majesty on display in creation. I just have to wake up in the morning and open my eyes. I only need to learn to see God's glory in the dirt that my feet are in right now. Learning to love the place that I am because it's a place where the glory of God is on display, that's an act of Christian discipleship. I love this quote from Wendell Berry. I think I got a quote from Wendell Berry. This is from his novel, Hannah Coulter. And uh, he says, there is no better place than this, meaning wherever you are. There is no better place th than this, not in this world. And it's by the place that we've got and our love for it and our keeping of it that this world is joined to heaven. There is no better place than where we are standing right now. Tending to the earth, digging in the dirt that we've been charged with tending is a wonderful response to the idea that all of creation declares the glory of God. It's a wonderful response. Creating a garden and tending to it. That's part of the original call of God on humanity. 
It's a way to commune with the God who gave all of us this to begin with. I think the gardeners and the farmers in here know that. We could learn something of this from them, that this that attending to the earth and loving the place that we are, actually the physical place that God has put us, is a wonderful way of collaborating in the public praise of God's glory. Now that's easier said than done when landscapes we see with our eyes look like a straightforward expression of God's glory. I I get that. Uh, The Grand Canyon is doing something unique. I understand. But that doesn't mean that God's glory is any less present in places that aren't quite so awe-inspiring. What's more, I think that this is a text that invites more of us when we consider places that seem more full of blight than full of beauty. Like, can the burned up and churned up and used and forgotten spaces in the world, which we probably don't have to imagine because most of us probably walked or drove by them on our way here, can those places really declare the glory of God? that I would remind us the great truth of the gospel that brokenness is not the truest true yes there is brokenness everywhere yes we are all broken yes we all stand in need of redemption and restoration in Christ but before we were broken we are image bearers in our brokenness we stand before God as beloved and redeemed and the same is true with creation before creation is broken we remember that God said that it all was good. And in broken spaces, God is still present, working out the restoration of all things. And so tending to and joining the chorus of the glory of God in broken spaces and in blighted spaces is an act of Christian hope. There is no better place than this. Not in this world. The second part of Psalm 19 David says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. I'll make this observation this way. David is creating here what feels to me like an on-purpose tension, an intentional tension. On the one hand, he's describing laws, statutes, precepts, commands, the fear of the Lord, decrees. Those are over here on this hand. And on the other hand, then he's describing all of those things as being perfectly refreshing, trustworthy and wise, right and joyful, radiant light, pure and enduring, firm and righteous. So I don't often think about uh, laws, statutes, precepts, commands, decrees as being those positive descriptors. I think of those things primarily as prohibitions, negatives in their normal sense. But what David is doing is he is, I think, creating a contrast That if we've been a Christian for a long time or we've heard this passage read before, maybe it doesn't land with us quite so tensionful as I think David means for it to be. These things that you might not assume are this way are actually perfectly refreshing, trustworthy, and wise. 
bright and joyful, radiant light, pure and enduring. The point of this section is simply the point of the whole sermon. In every imaginable way, God is speaking to us. First of all in creation, and now in God's word. Every possible way, God is speaking to us. And it is for our unimaginable good. You may not think it is for your good, but it is for your good. So what changes about this? About the way we live if this is really true? Well, it's interesting to me that David compares all of the scriptures to gold and honey. Because money and, okay, dessert, (laughs) those are two things people crave, right? Perhaps as much as people crave anything. Craving money is a struggle for so many people. Craving dessert is, well, uh, like... Maybe I'm not the only one who can totally just get down on a tuxedo cake in Tony and Jessica's backyard after I've already had three or four desserts that day. If you're thinking, that's a very specific illustration. (laughs) Say, yeah, that's weird. David is saying the Word of God is like that. Do we crave the words of God like like maybe folks do with money or delight? Craving is like this visceral, physical reaction. A a, a physical recognition that I am not full, that I am empty, that I am in need of something. That is what it means to crave something. And people reach for all of these other things to try and quench that craving. David is saying the words of God are like that. Do we crave it? I have to say, honestly, most days I do not. But perhaps that's one of the reasons why the things I crave continue to create craving in me. Because they do not satisfy. It leaves me still empty and needing. Perhaps it's just a reminder that God's Word is such that if we trained our appetites correctly, that we would have a visceral need for that and find ourselves satisfied not in need. God's unimaginable goodness can take root in our lives if we satisfy our cravings with the words that God is speaking to us everywhere. So then David finishes this psalm this way. Okay, regarding the scriptures, by keeping by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David finishes this psalm with a very direct prayer to God. And it's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of repentance. And I don't know if you catch this, this last verse is the verse that Andrew often prays at the very end of his prayer right when he begins to preach. And I think that's a great way to approach the Word of God because it strikes me that this is the way that, that, that is good and right 
when people of God hear God speaking. When we hear God speaking, the appropriate response is ultimately one of repentance. Repentance on its own literally just means to turn. To turn away from something towards something else. And so when we encounter the God who speaks to us in every imaginable way for our unimaginable good, it means that we are wise to turn from whatever voice or voices we've been heeding and turn to God. In this sense, I think David is reminding us that repentance is a way of life. Repentance is a daily realigning with God in response to him speaking to us. Realigning with the God who is speaking to us for our good is a good working definition of the good life. So that's what I think the writer means. I think that's what David means. That's what the song means. Uh, That's not how it landed in my life. So I thought I would tell that story as well. A couple of weeks ago, we had an elder meeting, and I was talking about the fact that I was preaching, and somebody made a joke about how all of my sermons get really angsty at some point. This is that point. So, uh, I still remember this. I heard this sermon preached um, when I lived in Chicago. A woman was giving uh, a message on this, and there were many amazing things that were said, but I I remember her telling her story of having a a daughter who was nonverbal and how that was a struggle for her in many ways, as it would be for any parent. And... When she got to the verses 3 and 4, can we pull 3 and 4 up? I know it's not in the... It's okay if everything else is around it too. She said, she read verses 3 and 4, they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. They have a daughter who's nonverbal, Uh, this was a comfort to her because she knew that her daughter could join in with the praise of all of creation. It just landed with me so deeply in that moment, both because of the beauty of the way God met her with that song of David from so many thousands of years ago. But it landed with me for a different reason. Because if I'm honest, I often... um, have a hard time praising God for all manner of reasons, not because I'm nonverbal. If you know me, you know I can't shut up. Um, it's not because I don't think God deserves it. It's definitely not because I don't think I want to. Uh, sometimes I feel like I have a trouble finding words that actually match my experience, and so sometimes uh, coming in on a Sunday morning as a metaphor and like joining in these big songs feel a little false. To me, to my own experience in life. Um, And so sometimes a passage like this makes me feel pressure to sort of meet the vocal swell of the chorus of the cosmos. Like if I can't get to where all of creation is, what's wrong with me that I can't find the words? But in the dark night of the soul, it is sometimes hard to sing. Um, there was a 16th century Spanish priest named St. John of the Cross, and he wrote about what he called the dark night of the soul. 
The dark night of the soul is not exactly an experience of suffering. It's not exactly an experience of loss. It's not exactly an experience of temptation. The dark night of the soul is a season of life where God feels absent or where God feels silent. St. John of the Cross would liken it to God removing his presence from our lives for the purpose of moving us to deeper faith, for the purpose of moving us to a faith that can withstand doubt, faith that can withstand struggle, faith that trusts God is present, active, and good, even when by all of our senses we cannot experience God as present, active, and good. Does that make sense? You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm wondering if anybody else has had seasons of life where they experienced that. Some have said that the dark night of the soul, which isn't necessarily just like a one-time thing in our lives, is like that time in a young child's life where a mother stops nursing or bottle feeding and stops responding to that spastic cry of hunger, but instead allows a child to like cry it out as a way of developing a deeper trust that food will come when food is needed. Does that not just when it's spastically cried out for. Meaning that sometimes God will remove his presence from our lives, not as a punishment, but because we are in need of growth, because we are in need of maturity. And sometimes those places feel very dark and silent and God is absent. It can feel like punishment, but it's not. It can feel like God is gone, but God's not. It can feel like the things that you believe are far too far-fetched to possibly be true or worth giving your life to. But they aren't. This is much more than, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. It is, I'm pretty sure God isn't there, and I'm pretty sure God has abandoned me. But here's what I realized, sitting there that day listening to this woman preach about her nonverbal daughter. That if the heavens declare the glory of God, if everything in all of creation is singing the praises of the Father, then it's okay to be a silent member of the chorus. It is okay on days when I can't bring myself to sing. Instead of the pressure, this passage set me free to be where I was with God. If all of creation is singing the praises of God, then it's okay if I just agree with them in silence. When the fields and the forests and the vales and the mountains and the flowering meadows and flashing seas are a choir in constant refrain to the glory of God, then it's okay if all I can muster is a feeble amen. In fact, when the lights are off or God feels distant, a silent amen is a profound and courageous act of faith. So I feel like the Lord used this passage in that way in my life when we lived in Chicago, a very difficult season for me. And I still remember sitting in our church and these incredible worship songs being played and all I could do was cry. That is all I could do because of the intense season that it was for me. I could not bring myself to sing. And it was in those, that season of life that I heard that sermon preached that way. And so I started going to church 
not with the intention of like conjuring some sort of false joy that I couldn't get to, but when I could not sing, I would just try to say amen to the songs being sung around me. And if I could say amen to the songs being sung around me, if I could trust that God, if God is who God says he is, and he is totally fine with my struggle, that God would be just fine with me saying amen next to people who could muster the song. That it's possible to join with the creation that has no speech and has no words, and yet my voice still be going out into all the world. I don't know if anybody else has experienced that season of life, but that's why this song is meaningful to me. I'm not sure David had that in mind when he wrote it. I want to say one more thing, and then we'll transition to the table. In a church this size, there are people for sure going through what I go through from time to time and the story that I just described. For sure. So if you are not in that place, if you are not in a dark night of the soul or a season of struggle, sing loud. Sing loud, please. Not only because God is worthy, God is worthy, but because for your sisters and brothers who are struggling to find the right words, wondering if any words will do, when we sing loudly, we are metaphorically a shoulder to lean on. We are a stable place in someone else's storm, a voice singing a song that everyone else in the room can say amen to. Sometimes those of us who need to not say anything need people singing loud so that we can just say amen. What Donna said, amen. What Sam said, amen. What Dave said, amen. There are a lot of people whose hearts can't always muster the melody, so if you've got one, let it rip. So as we come to the table, I want to read this from Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, I think, was thinking about Psalm 19. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews turns, it, turns our attention to Jesus and hears Psalm 19 all the way through this. <clears throat> this is how the book starts. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The heavens declare the glory of God. God is speaking to us in every imaginable way, including when we come to this table where Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it out to blessed and broken disciples as a way of sustaining themselves so that they can go out to declare the praises of God. So we come to this table, we'll have servers here, here and in the back. As we sing, we invite you to come to remember, to rehearse the story of Jesus and his sacrifice, and also as a way of together 
proclaiming the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we do give you glory, even in times when it is difficult to do so. We are grateful for the way that you create a world that is a chorus of praise, that all of creation bears witness to your glory for us as a way of sustaining us and lifting us, and also as a way of drawing us into that chorus of praise to you. But we pray, God, that you would open our eyes, that we would see it, that we would learn to see the glory of God on display all the time, that you would draw us into a desire to hear from you and to respond to you, to realign our lives with you. As we come to this table, God, we pray that it would be a reminder to us of the, the invitation that we have to realign life with you. Amen.